Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is such a great Old Testament story that we've been working our way through this fall as we've made our way through the life of Abraham. And this morning we come to a really significant and interesting part of the story as we move forward. Last time we saw that these three visitors, two angels, and then God himself in human form came and met with Sarah and Abraham and promised to them again that they will have a child, that they will have a son of their own, Isaac, and he will be born in one year. Sarah didn't believe, and she had laughed, if you remember last week, a cynical, jaded laughter of unbelief, and God had reminded her, remember this moment when you laugh at me, Sarah. This time next year, you will be laughing the laughter of joy. And so we see this week that the three visitors are still there, hanging out with Abraham, and yet we also find this week that their visit to Sarah and Abraham is really just a stop on the way to their final destination. They are turning their eyes towards this ancient town, this ancient city of Sodom, which we're going to look at next week. 
We know from Genesis 13 that the city of Sodom is a wicked city. As Moses wrote in chapter 13, it's full of great sinners against God. Lot, Abraham's nephew, is dwelling there. And the angels, along with the Lord himself, are coming to examine and see what's going on. But before we get to Sodom, we see today God speaking with Abraham. And what we find here is really quite a remarkable interaction between Abraham and the Lord himself. Abraham here offers a prayer to God. And it's really the longest or most extended prayer in all of the Bible up to this point. And it's a particularly special prayer because of what it teaches us about not just Abraham's need and the need of the people of Sodom, but about our need. What Abraham is doing in this prayer and interaction with God is serving as a priest. He's serving as a priest. And so a large part of what's happening in this part of our story is the Holy Spirit is teaching each one of us that all of us need a priest. All of us need someone to bridge the gap between us and between God. And the good news of the story this morning is that what Abraham does here prefigures the work of a greater priest, the priest that really all of us need. And so let me summarize the point of the second part of Genesis 18 this morning for you like this. We need a priest who can pray for our pardon and pay for our pardon. We need a priest who can pray for our pardon and pay for our pardon. And I want to show you two things in the text. First, the majority of our time this morning will be spent on looking at Abraham's priestly prayer. Abraham's priestly prayer. And then secondly, I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus's priestly prayer. Okay, so I love how the story starts in verse 17. God is still hanging out with Abraham, and he sort of says out loud to his companions with Abraham kind of standing there, you know. Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? It's sort of like, you know, when you've probably had interactions like this, when someone says to you, I've got a secret, and I don't know if I should tell you or not. You know, which means that they've already decided they're going to tell you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They're going to tell you what the secret is. And the reason they're telling you is because they're investing a certain amount of trust in the relationship that they have with you. And you can see here, in a sense, amazingly, that God is entrusting this divinely hidden information with this man, this man whom he has chosen, Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham's like, hey, God, I'm right here still, you know. And so God goes ahead and tells him. He says he's going to come and judge this place called Sodom because he says the outcry, verse 20, against the place is great and their sin is very grave. Now, we're going to talk about God's judgment next week. So hold your horses on that topic. Come back next week. If that's something you'd like to hear about, you know what? Even if you don't want to hear about that, which you probably don't, come back next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But for now, two quick things. I want to just say real briefly that this, you know, almost as a parenthesis, that the story here or the language here is in the form of a narrative or a story. So it kind of seems like God is like unsure about what's happening in Sodom, right? He's like, I'm going to go investigate to see if the outcry is legitimate or justified or not. Now, it doesn't mean that literally God doesn't know. God knows everything. God knows exactly what's happening there. But the way the story is framed for us so that we can understand it and sort of resonate with us is in the form of a narrative. It's not a systematic theology book here. It's sort of a biblical theological story. So it's not like God is ignorant about what's happening in Sodom. But Moses, the author of Genesis, has written it so that the plot line develops in a way that we can keep up and maintain our interest. And then secondly, 
those first few verses, 17 through 21, I think actually show us that God is really encouraging Abraham here to respond to this news by saying, will you please halt your judgment, God? He's, he's encouraging Abraham to act as a priest, to intercede for the people of Sodom. And without going into all the details, it's clear that God is giving this information to Abraham because he wants Abraham as a blessing for all the nations, as a man committed to righteousness and justice, to engage with God about what's going to happen, about what God has determined to do. He wants Abraham to pray, to pray for the city of Sodom. And so that's exactly what we see Abraham do beginning in verse 22. And this is an incredible prayer. I hope you noticed it as it was read for us. It's good for us to see... um, to see that we shouldn't read this prayer kind of the way I did when I first read it this week. And maybe the way you understood it as it was read. Kind of like Abraham is bargaining like he's on a used car lot, you know. Hey God, how about 60? How about 50? 40? 30? 20? That's not, it's not sort of like Abraham bartering with God, trying to get the best possible deal for Sodom. That's not primarily uh, what's happening here, and it's not the best way to read the text. Something much more significant is happening. As I already mentioned, what's happening here fundamentally is that Abraham is acting as a priest. What is a priest? It's a very religious word. Um, A priest is someone who intercedes for people with God. A priest you can think of as a bridge. A priest is a bridge between man and God. And that's exactly what Abraham is doing here. In verse 23, when we read that Abraham drew near, that word drew near in the Hebrew language is a technical word. And it's used very often later on in the New Testament of priestly activity. When a priest would go into the temple to make a sacrifice, this is the verb that is used. And so that's one of the ways that the author is showing us as readers that what Abraham is doing here is interceding for the people of Sodom to God. He's praying for them. He's acting as a priest. He's serving as a bridge, you see. So what does Abraham pray for? That's really the main idea or the, the main thrust of these last few verses. And, and if you read it with me, you'll see that initially Abraham is praying that God would spare the righteous people in Sodom. Did you catch that? Verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, Abraham's main appeal to God is to God's justice. He's saying, God, it would be unjust or unfair or unrighteous of you to indiscriminately wipe out this entire city. To take out the good people along with the bad people. He's assuming that the wicked people in Sodom deserve God's judgment. But he's saying, God, I know you're going to judge the wicked. You are a just king. You're a righteous king. But surely you're not going to so indiscriminately wipe this place out in divine judgment that the good people are going to get washed away with the wicked people. That's what Abraham is praying. He's asking that God would spare those who were righteous in the city of Sodom. That's his initial appeal. He appeals to God's justice. And we see that very clearly in verses 23 and 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And God's answer to Abraham is that yes, 
He will do what is just. He is just. But he says something more, and this is really important. Don't miss it. Here's what he says. He says, I will not only be just, I will actually be merciful. You know, Abraham says, just don't wipe out the righteous people. And what God says in response is not only will I spare the righteous if they can be found in Sodom, but for the sake of the righteous, I will spare the whole city. You see that? Verse 26. The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham, in a fresh and amazing way, discovers something fundamental about what God is like here. And I hope you can discover it as well. God will grant pardon to the wicked if righteous people can be found. To put it another way, with God, it is possible for a righteous person to cover the evil of a wicked person. So Abraham begins to understand this. And so he continues to plead with God based on God's initial response that he will pardon everyone if 50 righteous people can be found. And this is a bold and yet also a humble prayer. You know, you heard the story. The drama is really amazing. It's building up to this great climax. Abraham takes it all the way from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. You can feel the tension building with each new request that Abraham makes of God. And each time God says, yes, Abraham, I will do that for the sake of 40, for the sake of 30, all the way to 10, for the sake of 10 righteous people that can be found in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham's like, okay, let me try again. Right? Each time, each time, each time. Sort of like when you have little kids and the child's birthday is coming up. And uh, you tell your child, we're going to have a birthday party for you this year. Who do you want to invite? And we don't want it to be any big deal. We just want you to invite a few close friends. And so your kid goes, I'd like to invite, you know, two people. And you say, great, we'll plan the details. And the next day your kid comes back, you know what, can we invite five people? And you're like, okay, sure. And then five hours later, can we invite 10 people, Dad? And Dad's like, talk to Mom. And Mom's like, okay, that's fine. And pretty soon the whole class is coming. 25 kids. And pretty soon the whole church is coming. 150 people, you know, right? More and more and more. And that's kind of what's going on here. As a parent, we want to be gracious. We want to show our children how much we love them. We want to be as accepting as we possibly can, although birthday parties might cause a little bit of stress. We want to have a great party for our children. That's almost kind of what we see happening here with God. He wants to show Abraham the extent of his love for his children. But look what happens next. Abraham stops at 10. Didn't you catch that? Why does he stop at 10? You know, do you ever think about why that is? You know, the entire flow of the story would expect Abraham to say next, what? How about, how about one? I mean, the whole buildup of the drama is leading to that question. God, how about one righteous person? Would you spare Sodom for one person? But Abraham doesn't say that. He stops at 10. Why? Oh, honestly, we're not sure why. I mean, I thought about that some this week. I suspect that the reason is because Abraham already feels like, you know, he's on the very limits of what God will allow. And you can kind of pick up on that in the language when he says, oh, God, don't be angry. How about 20, right? And so when he gets to 10, Abraham loses his steam, as it were, and decides to stop there. But it's really abrupt. 
Now, the story is almost kind of like a story with the last chapter, the, the climactic chapter torn out. Or like a symphony with the final grand movement of the symphony not played. It ends very, very abruptly. And yet, Abraham has discovered something crucial about God. And I hope you can see something crucial about what the real God is like here. The real God will look upon a righteous person and pardon the wicked for the sake of the righteous. One commentator named Gerhard von Rod, fun name, I know, he was German, wrote this uh, about 80 years ago, commenting on this story. I think I've got it up here. It's already up. Thank you. Abraham is in great anguish of mind, knowing that we have no right to ask this. But what is amazing is how God's gracious righteousness dawns on Abraham and increases his courage until he arrives at the astonishing fact that a small number of people could please a righteous God so much that it will stem punishment. So prominent is God's will to save over his righteous judgment. Now, more on that in just a second. But for now, let me just try to apply this story like this. What we see here is another partial fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where we read that Abraham will be a blessing to every nation. What do I mean? Abraham is offering an intercessory prayer here. And we see that all over the Bible. In Exodus 34, for example, after Israel makes the golden calf, God prays for Israel. God's like, I've had enough. I'm done. And Moses prays to God for Israel. Spare them. That's another example of an intercessory priestly prayer in the Bible. But in all the other examples in the Bible, the prayer is made for God's people. But here, Abraham is praying for Sodom. He's praying for this wicked land, this wicked city full of sinners. And one thing we have to take from this is this idea. Abraham cares about people who are far from God. He prays for them. He cares for the city even in its wickedness. And that's remarkable when you consider how people often tend to view Christians. People often view Christians in Christianity like this. They take care of their own. They're concerned about those who are already inside their walls, and they don't give a rip about me. And yet, we see here and in many other places in the Bible that that, that idea is fundamentally at odds with the way of God. And it's fundamentally at odds with the story of the scripture. God calls his people to care about and to pray for and to plead with him regarding the broken condition of the world in which we live. So, very practically, if you are here and you are a Christian, part of your calling is to care about those who are not like you at all. And who might even rabidly oppose and disagree with you on things that you care about deeply. That, in fact, is the welcome of the gospel. That is why the church should hospitably open its doors to anybody and everybody. And we should expect people who have very little, if anything, in common with, quote, Christians to come here and experience the love of Jesus for them through us. That's what Abraham's example here teaches us, among other things. There's a book that I read a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of years ago, excuse me, called Same Kind of Different as Me. Some of you might have read it. It's about this man who lives in Fort Worth, I think, still to this day. And he was a wealthier individual, and he ran in sort of the high society circles of Fort Worth. I, I know I was surprised that those existed as well, but they do exist in Fort Worth. And he, somehow he came across this African-American gentleman who had come out of homelessness recently and uh, just had... 
from the other side of the tracks, completely different background, completely different story. And these two strike up a friendship. Uh, white, wealthy guy, black, poor guy, guys from totally different socioeconomic backgrounds, totally different ethnic backgrounds. And it's really quite an interesting book. And both of these people become Christians along the path of the story. And it's well worth reading. But the whole point of the book is that God calls us to welcome and love and care about and pray for those with whom we have nothing in common by nature. At one point in that story, um, Denver Moore, the name of the formerly homeless guy, says this, the word says God don't give us credit for loving the folks we want to love anyway. No, he gives us credit for loving the unlovable. You know, humanly speaking, it makes zero sense that Abraham, the Hebrew, would care anything about the people of Sodom. But his heart, you see, has been captured to some degree here by the heart of his God. Only the love of God in Abraham's heart could have brought about this kind of concern. And so one question that we need to ask ourselves is do we have that kind of burden for people who have nothing to offer us? For people who are totally different from us. That is what God is like. And that's what God's people are called to be like as well. So we see Abraham's priestly prayer. He intercedes for the city of Sodom. It's an amazing thing. But guess what? Some of you probably have already been thinking this. Sodom is, in fact, destroyed. Next week, we'll talk about it more. It's destroyed by God in judgment. If you want to think about it this way, you can. Abraham's prayer doesn't work. Um. Abraham's request fails. And as we think about why, it's it's very crucial for you to hear this this morning, friends. Um, It fails not only because there are not ten righteous people in Sodom. It fails because there are no righteous people in Sodom. It fails because there are no righteous people anywhere. And by righteous, I mean someone who is able to stand rightly before the living God. In the New Testament we read, the Apostle Paul say this, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Listen, Abraham asks God to pardon the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And God consents and agrees that he will do so. And yet, judgment still happens. Okay, are you following with me? Abraham says, God, if you can find ten, pardon them. And Abraham says, or God says, yes, I will. And then judgment still happens. So what conclusion could Abraham draw from that sort sequence of events? It has to be this. There is no one righteous enough to avoid the judgment of God. I need you to hear this, even though it's hard. Because this is the conclusion that all of us should draw as well. We face God's judgment for our own rebellion against him as our rightful ruler and king. That's what the Bible calls sin. We have turned away from him. We have done evil. Our hearts are crooked. Our souls are darkened. We try to deny that, sometimes by setting up all kinds of religious ways to make ourselves look better relatively than those who don't share our particular religious quirks or commitments. Sometimes we try to deny that by um, 
going through all sorts of spiritual hula hoops to make ourselves think that really we're okay. But the bottom line is this. The Lord is not very interested in how relatively righteous you are compared to other people that you feel comfortable comparing yourselves to morally. The Lord is interested in and demands a level of righteousness from each one of us that is unattainable by each one of us. And guess what? That's really bad news. So what? The conclusion of the story of Abraham and his priestly prayer, I think, is found in the larger context of the story of Scripture. Let me say it like this, okay? Because no one is righteous enough to avoid the judgment of God, every single one of us needs a priest greater than Abraham. We need a priest, as I said earlier, who can not only pray for us to be pardoned, but who can actually execute and accomplish the pardon that we need as well. Who can pay for our pardon. We need a priest who doesn't just pray for us to be spared by a righteous God for our rebellion. We need a priest who can actually spare us himself. We need a high priest who is actually himself perfectly righteous. You know, I mentioned a little minute ago that uh, we as readers would have expected Abraham to go all the way down to one, right? Remember that? Uh, Why didn't he say, will you spare the wicked for one righteous person? You know, the questions were, what would God have said? God would have said yes. And that is, in fact, what God does. And that's how this small story in the whole Bible points to the greater story of the Bible, the one righteous man who is, in fact, able to spare the wicked through his righteousness is Jesus. Jesus is the priest that we need. Jesus has, in fact, prayed for our pardon and paid for our pardon. That is what, according to the gospel, he did on the cross. Jesus is the final part of the story. Jesus is the last movement to round out the symphony. Jesus is the final chapter in the book. Listen to how a different part of the Bible puts this. This is in the book of Hebrews. Here's what we read. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, priestly work, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Later in Hebrews, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, we read in Hebrews, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, Jesus is both the priest who prays for us fervently and the priest who died for us finally. You see, we are all under the cloud of God's judgment. That is what rebellion against the king brings us. 
And it's what rebellion incurs. Our rebellion, our sin is cosmic treason against our infinitely gracious and kind and holy God. But God is gracious and longs to pardon. And so he shows us what he showed Abraham. For the sake of even one righteous person, he will spare many who are unrighteous. And God is so committed to that principle of grace that he himself becomes the righteous one who is punished in the place of the unrighteous. That's the gospel, you see. And so how can we wrap it up? How do we conclude? You know, at the risk of sounding overly serious, you know what, it is serious, so I'm just going to say it. Um, Every one of us here this morning has two possible standings before our king and our judge. Either he will condemn us due to our rebellion and cast us away from him and from all life in righteous judgment. Or he will pardon us because we believe that he condemned Jesus, our great high priest, in our place. You one day will either be judged for your unrighteousness by God or you will be judged by Jesus's, for Jesus' righteousness by God. And the simple question is this, which one of those will you choose? Jesus is the priest that we need. He prays for us and he pays for us. He has already accomplished all that is needed for us to be forgiven for us to be pardoned, for us to be brought into God's family, for us one day to enter into his eternal rest. And he calls you to believe this. He calls you to trust not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus freely offered to you in his death and resurrection. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You simply must trust that it is available for you through Jesus. And when you do that, God longs to pardon you. Because he will look upon you, and rather than seeing your unrighteousness, he will see the righteousness of your priest, the one who has bridged the gap between you and God, between life and death, between blessing and curse. So will you trust in Jesus as your priest? The God of the universe, the God of Abraham, summons you this morning to trust in Jesus and to receive his forgiveness, to recognize that you are guilty and deserving of God's judgment, to recognize that you fail to live righteously, and to see that God offers pardon through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is free, it is unearned, it is gracious, it can't be earned, it can only be received. That's what Abraham began to understand. I hope perhaps you will begin to understand it this morning or understand it in a new and fuller way as a result of what God is telling us through this story. Rest in Jesus. He is the priest who can pray for you and pay for you to be pardoned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and care for us and that you've proven that in the gospel, that even though we have gone far away from you, even though we have rebelled, even though even our best works are tainted by sin, God, you have sent your son to bridge the gap that exists between you and us. And he has indeed done that because he is a good priest. He's the one who has prayed for us and even now is praying for us. He is the one who has bled that we might receive forgiveness. And so God, help us to trust that Jesus has done that for us this morning and to turn to him in faith. We need your help to do that. It's not something we can conjure up on our own. So Holy Spirit, come and work that faith deep into each one of our hearts, we pray. 